The following podcast contains explicit language. This is Correct Politically. Hello and welcome back to Correct Politically, a podcast where we discuss modern issues of global concern. My name is Rafi Blumenthal and I'll be your host this week and I'm joined by the Able crew of Joshua Romano. Hola. And Joshua Hamowitz. Hello, world. This week, we're going to talk about the topic of corruption. As far as thinking about corruption in the political arena, it really can take two different forms. And that's what I want to kind of introduce in this introduction. And then we're going to discuss its sort of history in U.S. politics and why why it could potentially pose a risk um, in the uh, 2016 Trump presidency. So the first type of corruption is a type of corruption that we may not even apply the word corruption to because it's, it's fairly familiar. And that's a corruption where you have big business or just um, money having an impact on political outcomes, right? So that can take the form of lobbyists who are being paid by certain industries to have certain laws, you know, come out in a certain way. I mean, think about the NRA, certainly, right, has a guiding hand in gun legislation. The Koch brothers famously have helped um, sort of uh, increase the trend of climate change uh, positions and policies because of the hundreds of millions of dollars that that they've put to those ends. And that's sort of like a, a fundamental, not a fundamental part, that's sort of like a realistic part of our current political system. And we accept it. Like, sure, money is having an influence, um, but it, so, we, we accept it to be a core part of, of how things work. So an example of this would be like bribery, like someone just giving a, a politician a bribe to get something that they want done. Yeah, exactly. Like a, it could be a bribe under the table. It could be a, a donation to your political party, but that's exactly what it would be. Um, like you've been mentioning legal ones like lobbyists and different things like that, but all the time, you know, different uh, corporations will give bribes to or, or, you know, whatever, different bribes to different politicians in order to get government contracts or, or get preferential treatment. Um, you know, that, that's definitely something that happens. Exactly. And what a bribe basically represents is money, right? That's what a bribe is. And it's using that money to influence a political outcome. So this is all like things that are fairly familiar to us. And, th- and that first category is what political scientists call venal corruption. Um, it's a sort of part of, of the way things almost always work unless you're like in an autocracy. Um, but I guess the other type of corruption, which I would still consider a lot more dangerous, both because of its scope and because of its like intractability, is where you have not just you know businesses helping impact the outcome of laws, but where you have a government that functions to sort of um, further the interests of businesses that are aligned with that government. So basically, like, this is what you have in, like, Putin's Russia and or, you know, uh, Erdogan's Turkey, um, where you have, it's, it's what you would call a kleptocracy. Hopefully someday soon we don't say, or in Trump's <laughs> well, America. Well, this is, this is the risk, and this is why I think it's an important topic to explore, because what, when you have institutions like that, you end up having not just outcomes influenced by money, but entire laws influenced by businesses, right? Like the allocation of government contracts goes to those businesses that sort of conform to the government's needs, and that creates a self-reinforcing cycle. 
So in Brazil, where we had a scandal where the um, politicians were using contracts with the oil company to enrich themselves, that was an example of systemic corruption because the corruption was coming from the politicians and they're using the mechanisms of government and the economy in order to enrich themselves. Exactly. And you were having like entire governmental contracts or laws being written and passed in order to further the interests of that oil company. That's the systemic kind. We don't have that to date in, in the U.S. Right. And that wasn't the company using the politicians to have advantageous uh, policies for the company. It was the politicians using the company to enrich themselves. Exactly. And the way I like to think about it is if, like, if, if policy or, or, or um, specific legislation is like a car moving forward, right? So when you have the first type of corruption, the relatively benign corruption, you have the politicians and their more or less good interests driving the car. They, are, they have the, the steering wheel firmly in their hands. And like business has like a seat in the back. Like they're, 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 help, they're being a backseat driver. But like fundamentally, the politician is behind the wheel. Whereas when you switch over to systemic corruption, the politician is just like in the trunk at that point, And business and, and money is driving the car. And the outcomes are like entirely determined by money and business. And the politicians are just like the tools that are being used to effectuate those outcomes. So um, just in summary... Uh, corruption breaks down into two forms. There's the venal corruption, which is relatively benign, where you have big business using politicians or using the political process to help themselves, to ensure outcomes that are beneficial to them, like the Koch brothers, right, influencing politicians to get climate policies that are more agreeable to them. Whereas systemic, which is the more dangerous type, is where you have the politicians going to business to... Um, receive outcomes that benefit them, the politicians, right? So that, that, that's, that's how we sort of break it down. But Hamey, this is not a new concern of political science, science uh, thinkers and philosophers. So why don't you walk us through how the founding fathers first tried to um, tackle this beast? Before even talking about American history, it's important to note that right now we live in a time where there actually is an immense fear of venal corruption. And I think that we see that both in Bernie Sanders' pre uh, candidacy and in Donald Trump's candidacy, where they're both railing against, well, especially Bernie Sanders, Citizens United, the disastrous decision, as he always refers to. And these are opportunities for big business interests to uh, make donations and be really involved in the political process. So this is in the national conscious right now that people are constantly thinking about election reform. We are, they are addressing venal corruption. But... In the beginning of America's history, that was much less on the radar. What was really on the radar was systemic corruption. And it was because – so the king of England was supposed to be in a power-sharing agreement with parliament. But he tried to um, consolidate his own power through various mechanisms of the economy and the government so that he had people in parliament that were more uh, loyal to him. And uh, people recognized this. So uh, the Americans are seeing this, or the newly – found Americans are seeing this, and they really want to prevent any sort of thing like this happening where one part of the government gains so much control they can start manipulating other branches of society and gain so much power. So everything in the start of the, uh, the American experiment was geared towards preventing this systemic corruption. So that's why we have checks and balances. That's why we have severe limitations of executive authority, especially in the beginning of the country's 
existence, which is why the Articles of Confederation um, also had a very limited amount of uh, federal power at all. Um, but and this sort of continued for a while up until uh, and and another thing they did was they actually restricted voting. And part of the reason why they restricted voting is because they wanted to prevent. Uh, someone from riling up the masses and gaining a lot of grassroots power just like that demagoguery, which is a lot of what happened in some of the Latin American countries that as soon as they became republics, some guy with a really um, attractive personality would gain a lot of support from the masses and he would be able to gain power and keep power for a very, very long time and it devolved into tyranny. Right, and it sort of like can start with like a cult of personality because there can be like a great man, like a, you know, Simon Bolivar or someone of, of you know, equal uh, significance and everyone's behind them. So like the implications of how the political system can be set up around one great leader or one sort of very popular leader is, is the sort of like process that they were then afraid of, right? Yeah, and George Washington could have totally been that if he wanted to, but luckily for us, we had an awesome first president. Right. So could Simon of Bolivar, uh, CF yeah. Revolution Season 5. Uh-huh. That Simon Bolivar, for those of us who don't know our Latin American history, is pretty much the George Washington of Venezuela. But a lot more baller, I think. Uh, yeah, he was, like, way more of a cowboy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> George Washington was pretty baller. Yeah, but he, like, married he, into, he, like, the richest family in the colonies, and he was, like, a pretty shitty general. He was definitely um, a gold digger. I don't know if he was a <laughs> shitty general. No, he was the most—he uh, was the best retreater of all time. Exactly. He was, <laughs> he was really good at losing. Yeah. He, he, he <laughs> definitely a gold digger. You got to do your revolutions, Chazara. Yeah. <laughs> It was it was George Clinton that one. She'd the... take your money. <laughs> That's what he used to sing going out into battle. <laughs> so restricting voting is a strategy by the founding fathers to prevent demagoguery and prevent these uh, people, unwanted people, who to rise to power. And that was done in other places around the world too. Like in the French Revolution, they had a distinction between active and passive citizenry. And the reason why they did that is because they didn't want the the faceless mob to be voting. They didn't want the people who they would vote for to be controlling the government. They didn't feel bad. That that was a recipe for tyranny, actually. Right. And it wasn't so much like a, coming from a sense of like elitism. There was obviously some of that. But it wasn't that, oh, let's not let the populace vote so only the rich people vote. It was instead of allowing you know, the masses to vote, let's put more faith in institutions. Like that was really the core part of it. It was sort of stemmed from a um, lack of faith in human character that dictated that we need to sort of like put a limit on democracy so that our institutions as bodies can check any single one person from getting too much power. Oh, interesting. I also think... It might also just be because the elites didn't trust the. Yeah, the I, th- I, think, I, think, it's not, I think it's not only that. That's it what might I'm be saying. a combination yeah. of both of those. Yeah, agree, things. agreed, agreed. But uh, it, it, and that was really important to to a lot of the people setting up the system, and they thought that like, okay, so if you uh, if they elect someone who is just you know got a cult of personality that's going to just try to consolidate his own power, that that's going to lead once again to tyranny. So uh, that was a whole a debate, and it's funny because it's so counterintuitive to us. Because right now we're like, wait a sec, you're telling you're going to take away votes and that's somehow going to guarantee freedom? But that's exactly the case that they were making. They were like, yeah, if you take away some, uh, if you disenfranchise some groups of people, those groups of people won't have a say in politics and the people they elect won't be, we won't be in danger from those people that they're electing. It sounds very elitist in thinking that like only the select few will know what to do. But at the same time, I mean, maybe those, they were worried that like those people, the members of the electorate, or the population at the time, um, 
you know, would follow some demagogue and not really know what right. the hell's going on and just kind of like follow the lead and that's where things would get really corrupt. And this was commonly referred to as tyranny of the majority. So if you're a, a high school student out there like reading American history and you would come across that term, that's really what they're talking about is, uh, is the majority of people uh, electing like a, t- a tyrant who's going to... Uh, right, and like most states, even like the original colonies... It, they were they had like direct democracy so far away right cuz like the the first few presidents weren't elected by vote it was that people would vote for state legislators then the legislators would vote on who would go to the electoral college and then the electoral college would ultimately decide who became president so like the people were two steps removed from electing leaders once again all to prevent demagogues from rising to power so and, and, and that was broadly more broadly speaking to prevent systemic corruption. So that's what everything was geared towards that. But now after a hundred years of this, people sort of got used to it. And in the beginning of American history, you had a guy like Hamilton who was trying to have a central bank and really trying to centralize sort of economic uh, uh, institutions uh, that would be controlled by the federal government. And people were really super wary of this because what people saw was that, oh my God, if this guy Hamilton is going to have so much control over the mechanisms of the economy, then he will have the power to become this you know, systemically corrupt individual who can use those mechanisms to enrich himself. And that was a major paranoia of people who had just gotten out of uh, the tyranny of the king of England. So that, that, I think, helps us understand a lot of the systems of government that we still have in place today. But if that was their fear and that was the reason why um, so, many, so much of our government looks the way that it does, if you fast forward to 2016, we're all of a sudden at least suggesting that there might be a risk of like, things getting turned on their heads. So, so j why don't you explain to us how... Within the current system of government, like we're not talking about a revolution, how like this fundamental balance um, and our whatever it is, 240 year history of avoiding systemic corruption. Why is that suddenly uh, something we might need to question? Yeah, so risk is definitely an understatement because, as you said before, I mean, we've never really had a leader that's had so many, so many different types of business interests abroad that nobody's really had this issue before. Like, for example, like when President Obama became elected, he did have certain uh, real estate holdings and he did have certain, you know, uh, investments. Yeah, there was the Clinton-Whitewater scandal, right? right? So I'm saying, so. like, different presidents, had, you know, they're not going to be expected to not have any types of investments, but they, the, the tradition has been to put it in, in something that's called a blind trust, which is literally you put it into another company that is run by a completely independent person having nothing to do with you or your family or anything like that, and you have nothing to do with the business while you're in power. Right. Now, and, and because it's abstract, I think just a way to like yeah. maybe simplify that is that imagine if you owned a stock portfolio, right? That's like the equivalent. Trump has owns over f- or manages over 500 companies across the world. So imagine if you had a stock portfolio with 500 different stocks in it. So if you became president, you would hand that over like, Jero, I would give you my portfolio and say, hey, look, if the market rises, you know, if, if Apple doubles, like, se- like you would sell it because that would just be like, I would trust your judgment. And then when I left office, like you could hand me back a portfolio that looks totally different and like that is the degree of separation that as a president like traditionally um uh, um presidents have had and the reason that they do that is because they're self-interest right so like when the president is elected or when somebody's president they there's this preponderance of knowledge of saying that like sorry there's this assumption that like 
they have the interests of the American people at heart, not the interests of President Donald Trump, President Obama, President Bill Clinton, anybody, President George W. Bush, not, not them specifically, but the interests of the American people. So they can't worry about that Apple stock. They can't worry about, should I give preferential treatment, preferential treatment to Apple, the company, because I own the stock? No, they can't because they, they, they have to be impartial to America or American companies in order to really run the country in the right way. Uh, so, so, and and that's what's historically been done. But again, just to be clear, right? Trump has has not placed these these holdings in a blind trust because there is not a blind trust, because Trump maintains his ownership and and seems determined to maintain his his um, ownership over all of his holdings. What is sort of like the risk that? Uh, or what could Trump do in terms of like the power he has in the executive branch or the federal government that gives us reason to be concerned for corruption? A couple things. He, Trump has hotels, right? And Trump also has uh, a license. You know, he licenses his brand out to different buildings and different clothing companies and stuff like that. He would also oversee the National Relations, National Labor Relations Board, which basically. Um, handles different labor disputes between different companies. He runs a hotel. If those hotel workers wanted to strike or wanted to um, organize in some sort of way, he could totally crush that by changing the laws and basically say, like, okay, you guys can't um, uh, strike in a, in a certain way. He would, he would totally just screw that up for certain people. Even more so than that, over his campaign, well, he opened up eight different companies in Saudi Arabia because he's trying to open up another hotel there. If there was some sort of um, uh, conflict that happened with Saudi Arabia, they have leverage over Trump by saying, we're not going to give you preferential treatment in where the hotel goes or, or um, tax refunds or anything like that because they have leverage. That's the whole thing. It's about leverage. Yeah. The president's never supposed to have... No country is supposed to have leverage over the United States or over the, the president, over his personal financial gain. And this is the real problem. It's the fact that like these countries will have leverage over the types of decisions that Trump will make in his presidency. Yeah, and just to give uh, at the risk of, oh, you know, over overbearing uh, examples, but a, a very specific one, and I think actually a very realistic one, is that Trump is currently in debt to Deutsche Bank, the, the uh, German uh, uh, bank. And... Um, we don't know exactly how much, but it's obviously like a relatively sizable amount. Why don't we know how much, Robbie? <laughs> because Trump has not released his tax returns. Um, another precedent, uh, uh, unprecedented, uh, you know, in the modern era. But anyhow, uh, that's like column A. Column B, at the moment, the um, Department of Justice has fined Deutsche Bank for $14 billion related to um, issues from like pre-2008. Uh, way these things typically unfold is that the DOJ will um, fine like a bank, you know, for a lot of money, and then rather than going to court, they'll settle at like something around half. That's what happened. They find like uh, J.P. Morgan, I think, for for eleven or twelve billion, and they settled for like three or four. That's kind of like the way it just sort of unfolds. But now let's like look at a Trump presidency. If for whatever reason, like there's no need to even have a conversation. One day, Deutsche Bank writes off, let's just call it the $100 million that Trump owes them. Okay, off the books, forgiven. Jeff Sessions, who's running the DOJ, sees that and understands that above all else, Trump values loyalty and pays back favors. Like, 
he is very likely to have a very influential voice in how the settlement with Deutsche Bank unfolds. So now Deutsche Bank basically can find themselves in a scenario where because they gave up an $100 million debt, which happened to belong to Donald Trump, they now are paying a $2 billion settlement instead of a $7 billion settlement. So they paid $100 million to get like a savings of $5 billion. Like that's a very realistic scenario because settlements and regulations are arbitrarily determined and in an administration where it's sort of like stacked with people that are loyal to you, there's never like even again like a conversation or a secret recorded meeting that needs to happen. It's just understood by like these type of signals. Right. So this is a once again a member of the government using financial institutions to better their own position which is an example of systemic corruption. And there are some laws against this, right? There, there, there is a law called the Emoluments Clause to the Constitution, which states that no title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of Congress, mind you, accept any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. So, so basically... What that means is that, like, no no president or ruler or, or president should be able, should be getting in any type of gains or any types of returns from any kind of foreign state or entity. Which, in all honesty and and obviousness, like Trump is going to have. I mean, he's gonna get returns from, as I mentioned before. Let's say he opens a, a hotel in Saudi Arabia or the Indian hotel that he's also op- like looking to open up. Like, he's going to be getting different returns from those foreign entities and that will therefore influence his decision based on whatever he's trying to do and and that's i think exactly and it's sort of like this unspoken language of signals that makes this a lot more real than we tend to think because like the word corruption conjures up like stacks of money and briefcases and like somehow bodies being emptied into like rivers right like that's like we think of like the movie screen version of corruption but it's a lot more simpler like think again of like the you know labor labor example the Saudi Arabia example or the Deutsche Bank example you know and then on the flip side imagine if like the Bank of China which um, Trump also is in debt to let's say, wasn't forgiving his debt or increased the interest payments. All that needs to happen is like Trump in a conversation with his buddy Jeff Sessions to be like, can you believe it? Like Bank of China is like still trying to collect, uh, you know, this debt. And like, I'm busy here trying to make America great again and whatever. And like Jeff Sessions realizing that the Bank of China is impeding upon this noble effort to make America great again goes ahead and looks into some of the, you know, uh, uh, whatever operations of Bank of China and can find a reason to go after them in a totally unrelated manner. Like that's that's, I think, why this is like a lot more real than it feels because of like this signaling of like decisions that the more intertwined our president is, the more likely it is that any single decision can impact him in a good or bad way. Oh, he could literally start a trade war by doing nothing. I mean, he could he could start a trade war with China just because, as you said, like somebody pisses him off at the Bank of China, he could totally just like go off on them and, and, and you know, higher tariffs or different things like that. Like he has so many tools at his disposal to fuck with the regular business, day-to-day business of the way that businesses run in America. And so now now I guess the question is, like, if we have determined that 
there is this risk for, again, not just like the more familiar um, venal corruption, but this now more dangerous systemic corruption, the reason why it becomes more dangerous is because of this choosing sides that happens, right? Like, there's no bank that's on, like, the good side of President Obama or the good side of President Bush or on the bad side, right? Because, like, this was never an issue, but when... Um, like when, when institutions like banks or uh, investment companies find themselves on the good or bad side of a president, well, then it is very easy to further entrench those that are on the good side by, by providing them with opportunities to you know, uh, create more profit and to also punish those on the bad side by making them more subject to regulations or providing um, – more stiffer settlements like there are all sorts of tools that once like the sides are taken sort of keep everybody on the sides that they're on those are arbitrary by the way those are basically like at the behest of how trump feels that day like if he's happy with those types of um with those types of banks then like he'll give them preferential treatment if they're screwing him over then he won't and like they'll totally just be they'll totally get screwed over and like that's that's why I think this this um, this subject matter is really more important than let's say like Trump's um, political appointees because like while that's important and while it's really scary that Jeff Sessions was was appointed Attorney General, this will just become the normal part and the normal way that business is done in America. If you pat Donald Trump on the back. He's going to make sure that you don't have regulatory problems in making your merger pass or making your business larger. But, and, and you will just be – if you're on the other side of that coin, you won't get screwed over because you're doing something wrong. Right. You he's not going to freeze your bank accounts. No, he's not going to freeze – no, no, but I'm saying like re- right. he will just make your life a living hell regulatory-wise and just mm-hmm. make things not run in a, in a certain way. And that's, that's why systemic corruption is so scary because – it's basically the it's basically political leaders sticking their hand in the 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 way that businesses run in America for their own personal gain. Like that's the scariest part. It's like right because I think that what it speaks to is like thinking back to the sort of groundwork that Hamey laid for us, um, and and sort of trying to put you know I guess like a, a punctuation on this overall question is that like individual people will always have good and bad sides to them. And that's something that like any government is always going to have because it's going to be staffed with people. However, what becomes more frightening is when the institutions that we have that were implemented quite wisely by our founding fathers in order to prevent this type of behavior, when the institutions themselves begin to deteriorate or get like corrupted, you know, in the literal sense, it's very, very difficult to then... Um, stabilize them again. And this is, I think, like the sort of danger we stand at the um, precipice of. And we have no other choice but to hope that either like congressional Republicans will find it in their uh, guts to like stand up to some of these concerns or that like Trump is really the pious saint that like we never knew before that he was. Because like those are the only ways this stops. Otherwise, it's almost like inevitable because it just speaks to human nature and the Trump entanglements forces the question um, to the fore. So, I, I mean, I don't have, like, if anyone has a solution they can throw out, but, like, I really just think it's, like, kind of like a 
hope at this point that someone stands up or someone finds it, you know, the, the calling to do the right thing. Well, you know what? Maybe that person will be Donald Trump. <laughs> I, it's uh, it, it, it sounds <laughs> desperate, but it's the it. And thinking back to the founders, right? Like it was all about the balance of powers. The ba- fundamental, like legislative balance, was the anecdote or prevention for corruption. And what you're describing is an imbalancing because now, like the legislative branch, as in Congress, if they are truly in step with the executive branch, that creates an imbalance, which like. Going back to like the political philosophers like Aristotle, who first wrote about these things, that is exactly how it's not that like you you end up having people that might get corrupt. That is what causes corruption and like and also pushes for a monarchy. Yeah, autocracy, I guess more yeah. more likely. But uh, I mean, on that cheerful note, I would say let's let's um maybe well, maybe 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 savor. No, no, I was gonna say. I mean, I don't want to leave us in such a horrible, terrible you know, uh, uh, message here, but we're not saying this to basically say like all is van- like all is fucked and like, let's not do anything about it. Like now that you know something about it, you can do something about it. Like you can try and be more informed about what's going on. You should try and you can try and read between the lines of the news of like what's actually going on because Trump is going to deny all this. Probably he will most likely say, I'm going to put it in a blind trust. The fact that my daughter was on the phone call with the prime minister of Japan doesn't mean anything. The fact that I have multiple holdings in countries around the world is, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to have any bias towards it. He's already said this. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. But like you can, you can now do something about it. You can now be more informed about it and make a more informed decision about calling up your congressman and saying whether or not you wanted to pass a certain law or, or trying to rally, or, you know, do, doing certain things. I mean, again, like, I don't want to try and, like, make this seem that, like, all is lost. No, and we have to put our faith, because honestly, it's the Republicans have the majority, and the put Republicans in, the in Congress have the capacity to prevent this from happening. The Democrats don't really have, like, a, a, a hand in this, um, because they're in the minority in both houses. Um, so, like, you know, like you said, it, it's really about hoping that the— um, Republican lawmakers will do the right thing and doing what any of us can to help impact or, or lead them towards, you know, the virtuous path. You know, it, it's just so interesting that this discussion is taking place a lot more after the election than it did before the election. And it really speaks to what, what as we said before, what lives in the American consciousness right now, which is fear of venal corruption, fear of the Koch brothers influencing elections, and not fear of what this man is going to do when he is in control of the mechanisms of government and what he will do to benefit himself. I mean, maybe just to close off, but it's a pretty funny story. I once heard someone say about like a a rabbi that's pretty out of touch with this community. And the guy put it as follows. He said, you know, the rabbi is running around the building saying like he smells smoke. And meanwhile, like the temple's on fire, (laughs) you know, like, like that's what we were doing. We were like running around, like smelling smoke and like the, fire that was there like we totally missed so um speaking of fiery things now's a great moment to talk about our secret stashes and um what is the secret stash the secret stash is the portion of the podcast where every week we share one special find or cool thing or titillating experience that we shared. And to lead us off is someone with the first name Joshua, and it will be determined by a fight. <laughs> <laughs> a duel. Fight to the death. A duel to the death. So I'll start us off. Um, 
So I'm going to take uh, Nitsan's mantle because um, he usually sometimes he gives. Um, was that what was lying there in the back of the room? Yes. Oh, okay. That was his mantle. Got yes, it. Yeah. Mantle. He always forgets it here. I know. Right? It's kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to take Nitsan's mantle and, and, and talk about a Netflix series. That, or actually, it's not a series. A Netflix documentary uh, that I found very, very entertaining. I not well. Very, very entertaining and also very, very interesting. Um, it's called, um, I think it's called Amanda Knox. It's about Amanda Knox. And I did not know who Amanda Knox was, maybe because I didn't, you know, I, I didn't, like, focus much on the story of what happened. But it's a really, really fascinating story about a murder that happened. And, uh, you know, she, she was in Italy doing study abroad. And then her roommate was murdered. And they accused her. It's, it's a very interesting story. And also it was told, it's kind of like, how to make a murder, but obviously I don't think the um, the documentarians take such a strong um, position on like what happened. But I thought it was very very well made, and uh, you should all check it out. Cool, Amy. Yeah, I'm gonna have to recommend another Netflix documentary that I've been watching <laughs> recently. Copycat. This week's yeah. episode is sponsored by <laughs> Netflix. <laughs> uh, the so the Netflix documentary that I've been watching recently with great pleasure is Oliver Stone's um, new history documentary and it's actually pretty like he makes it out to be like this like innovative documentary where he's like like the untold story of america it's fairly typical um <laughs> like every once in a while he'll get to, like, sounds a, like a typical oliver stone movie yeah <laughs> it, it, every once in a while it gets to a character that like i guess we don't focus that much on when you're learning about history at school and then he'll be like i bet you've never heard about this guy what's but, it called uh the untold story i don't know it's it's the only oliver stone documentary oh, i think it's the, that, yeah, the so. untold history of the united states of america. yeah, I've, I've, yeah I've, so I've except so you're saying it's already been told <laughs> <laughs> You know, w- with the exception of the whole, like, it being, like, an Oliver Stone, like, looking in there and patting himself on the back and calling himself handsome sort of fest, um, it's really good. And Sounds it's like actually, a ringing endorsement. The, the, right. <laughs> the cinematography is, like, great. Like, he has, like, great uh, old footage. He has great pictures. He has pretty good narration. And um, and just the, the narrative in and of itself is really good. It starts in the 40s and extends... I think through the modern time or something. I don't know. Maybe that's All just right. the first season, but uh, check it. Sweet. Check, 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 check it out. So mine is not a uh, Netflix documentary, but it's an article from The New Yorker from 2001 called The Searchers, and then you know the subtitles Radiohead's Unquiet Revolution by Alex Ross. And it's like a both fascinating article if you're either a fan of Radiohead or just curious about them. But what I especially loved about it was the writer, Alex Ross, does the thing that I find traditionally to be very difficult, which is write clearly and intelligently about like the music itself, not just like the culture and the fans and the band members, but like really describing like what is happening in so many of their songs and and what they're trying to do in like incredible prose. It actually led me to like then search Alex Ross and he's actually a um, Pulitzer Prize winning author of a book called The Rest is Noise, which is a sort of survey of music um, throughout the 20th century in America, which I um, ordered but haven't started or uh, haven't received or started reading yet. But um, the article itself, like I really like can't stress enough, just did such a fantastic job of telling like the story of radi- Radiohead and especially like the elements in its music. Yeah, What's I actually thought that book was a uh, was something that would help me. I live on a noisy street. So you wanted rest. What's you wanted respite from yeah. noise. So yeah, you bought I the thought book. it was like a self help book. Yeah, <laughs> but I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> What's your favorite uh, Radiohead album? 
honestly, like I'm not a big enough fan to have oh. like a favorite album. I have like favorite tracks. I like Kid A. Yeah. Well, you're dumb. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, <laughs> thanks a lot, Amy. <laughs> that's uh, it for this week. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, we'll hope you join us uh, next week. Thanks to uh, Amy and to Jero. No, thank you, Rafi. Thanks for being I will. There. I will thank me. Um, and like us on Facebook. Follow us on whatever other social medias. Um, and that's it for this week. Yep. We'd like to thank our, our listener for his con- his or her continued support. <laughs> We're thankful for our listeners. <laughs> Thanks for chiming in, buddy. <laughs> Peace out.